I wanted to tell the certain stories that had never been glorified by our traditional media and the mythologizing that often happens in men's sports and even other sports. I mean, we have movies, you know, like Seabiscuit about a horse more than we actually do about some of the iconic women in, in history. And so I wanted to take those stories and inject them with life and teach people, not teach people, I think that sounds a little too um, like eating your vegetables and just show them. Everywhere you looked at any moment in time since basketball was invented, there were women playing the game. Hi, I'm Kate Fagan. I used to be a reporter at ESPN and the Philadelphia Inquirer and also have written a number of books, including my fourth book, which is called Hoop Muses, an insider's guide to pop culture and the women's game. And it's about the history of women's basketball illustrated by a really dynamic illustrator and curated by... Simona Dustis, who has won Olympic gold medals and WNBA championships and is one of the icons of the game. And the book is the book is about bringing to life the many women in history and the events in the history of the game that has that has gotten us to where we are today. This is the Historians Podcast, and I'm uh, Bob Cudmore. Happy to talk with Kate Fagan, who I learn is a native of Schenectady. I mean, we're kind of close to Schenectady geographically at the headquarters of the Historian's Podcast. Her latest book is called Hoop Muses, An Insider's Guide to Pop Culture and the Women's Game, An Adventure Through Basketball History. Uh, let me read you something that I, I kind of extracted from your publicity material. Uh, quote, to be a woman's hooper or women's hooper is to be part of a long and proud tradition but one not often celebrated in popular culture. Hoop Muses is here to change that. Can you expand on that? Absolutely. I think as someone who played the game, I, I played at in high school, in at Niskiuna High School, actually, kind of down the road from where you are. And I played at the University of Colorado, and I played in Ireland and some semi-pro teams here. I thought I knew a lot about the game. You know, there were, there were women I could name from the 70s, like the Cheryl Millers of the world and Nancy Lieberman, Ann Myers. But I actually didn't quite know how we got from James Naismith inventing the game in 1992 to the 1970s women I just mentioned. And I wanted to tell the certain stories that had never been glorified by our traditional media and the mythologizing that often happens in men's sports and even other sports. I mean, we have movies, um, you know, like Seabiscuit about a horse more than we actually <laughs> do about some of the iconic women in, in history. And so I wanted to take those stories and inject them with life and teach people, not teach people, I think that sounds a little too um, like eating your vegetables and just show them everywhere you looked at any moment in time since basketball was invented, there were women playing the game and mm. telling their stories, some of them so dynamic and interesting that had never, has, have never reached popular culture. Sounds like the book that you've created is sort of like a Dickens' Christmas Carol with a ghostly guide uh, taking someone uh, through the history of women's basketball. Something like that, yes. It's sort of, we, we wanted to have kind of an overall premise of, rather than just, giving people like a chronological history book. We wanted to inject it with more flair. So we've got our, our two characters from the future, a, a, a woman named Jacqueline Jones, who in 2072 is the first 
hundred million dollar contract signee in the WNBA, and also this older woman who you come to find out is actually Simone Augustus, um, who curated the book. Um, she asks her, you know, she she says, "You remind me of a young Maya Moore." Um, and the the Jacqueline Jones is responds, "Who?" And that Ooh. sets them off on like that sets them off on um, you know a journey through the history of the game, so that this famous future player actually knows where she came from and the women who fought along the way to create the world that she lives in. Well, let me second her. Who about Maya Moore? And let me. Uh... You know, I'm not like confessing anything. I don't know much about women's basketball, but in my defense, in terms of being a, a sexist person or something, I just don't know much about sports in general. But who is Maya Moore? Well, Maya Moore is uh, one of the greatest players in women's basketball history. She played at UConn and won a number of titles there and, and played in the WNBA and won a number of titles for the Minnesota Lynx. She actually, a few years ago, retired early to on this quest because she was wanted to set free a wrongly incarcerated man, and she actually got him helped um, get him released from prison about two years ago. Um, it's kind of a famous story in women's basketball world, made certain headlines. But regardless of Maya's kind of work outside of the game, she is often considered one of the greatest players to ever play. Um, you were a sports fan, you know. In our world, if you're not a fan, you still kind of absorb the na- the famous names of men's sports, right? I mean, you're, you can't live in our world and not know Tom Brady and LeBron James, but sure. you don't necessarily absorb the greatest women's players. Uh, when did women's basketball begin? Very soon after it was invented. It was invent. Obviously, you know the story is. James Naismith invented it in 1892 in Springfield, Massachusetts. Although, if you go back, in, and we, we mentioned this in the book, there's some, contra- there's some controversy that it was actually invented in Herkimer. And Naismith picked up on it through correspondence and then developed the game in Springfield. But, but either way, it was 1892 around you know Springfield, Massachusetts. And right down the road was Senda Berenson who was a, a, a kind of a women, what we would consider like a women's health teacher, like a, a phys ed teacher. Um, right. And she saw the rules of the game in a publication that Naismith had, had, had printed them in. And so you find women playing the game like within a year of, of it, quote unquote, being invented in Springfield. And when you said Herkimer, you mean like Herkimer, New York, <laughs> just west of us here? Yes. Yes. Wow. Yep. Didn't didn't know that either. There. Yep. Now, the, the birthplace was at a women's college in uh, Western Massachusetts, Smith College? Yes, exactly. Um, Cinda Berenson was an immigrant, actually. Her family came over from technically what we would say is Russia. Um, and she was kind of a sickly... I think you would probably say something like bed bedridden, and she ended up becoming in charge of physical education at Smith College, which is in Northampton, Massachusetts. And it was there that she was read what, what I alluded to earlier. It was a YMCA publication called Physical Education, and that mm-hmm. was where she found the rules of this game. And unlike some of the other games at the time, specifically football, it, it appeared to be a game that was de- – it was a game that was developed 
to be indoors so that boys who played football and other games outside during the winter months would have an activity and it was supposed to be less physical, which was why women started playing it right away because it, it had that aspect to it that at the time seemed to appeal to, to both genders. Now, women's basketball grew among colleges, right? Well, let me ask you that first. I mean, is that how the, the, the sport um, prospered? Yeah, in those early years, so we're talking about the mid to late 1890s, the way the game spread was through colleges and universities because of, you know, Smith College, Springfield College being these Northeastern schools, and a lot of what we would deem physical education teachers would read certain publications, like the one I mentioned, physical education was the name of the publication. And so the word about this game spread both through written literature, you know, these magazines that would be distributed widely, or, you know, conferences or, or physical education teachers who, who knew one another. So in those years, in the late 1890s, you see the game reach all the way to the West Coast, um, Stanford University, Cal, and, and all the way in, in, in between as well. There, there were, you know, New Orleans had a version of basketball that they called baskets that they played at Sophia Newcomb College. And so in those early years, there were many different rules about how women played the game. There were pretty straightforward rules that mimic in some way what we now know as basketball for the men, but for the women, because of gender politics, there were many different regulations that limited movement and you wherever you go throughout the country you can see women at that time playing different versions of what we would now call basketball when did it become more standardized not until pretty much the early like 1910s where you start to see publications and, and even senda berenson our our original smith college phys ed teacher who was often credited as being the mother of the game she was involved in some of these publications like by, by companies we still now know, like a Spalding's. They would put out magazines, and, and in it would be like the rules of basketball. And so you start to see it become more standardized around that time, but there's still flexibility in it. Like, you know, it, w it wasn't until truly like the 1980s and 1990s that certain states like Iowa or Oklahoma started playing full five-on-five -five basketball for girls at the high school level. Because mm -hmm. then they were playing a version of six on six, which limited, which limited women to half court. So you'd have three players who only played defense and really couldn't cross half court, and then you had three players who played offense and couldn't get back on defense. And that was until, you know, that was until what I would consider mo I, modern times. I, I played with somebody from Oklahoma at, at the University of Colorado in the early aughts, and she had played six on six during her middle school years. So you kind of see the connection points there. But but the, the game became, generally speaking, standardized in about 20 to 30 years after some of the earlier rules. But there was always, like, there was always limitations, right, that was trying to limit women's movement in the game. Mm -hmm. One of the earliest rules was that there were as many boxes on the floor, not literal, but metaphorical, almost like a pickleball box, However many players there were, there were that many boxes, and women couldn't leave the box. So they could only run within their box. So you, you see all these kind of rules coming up for to limit 
physical exertion and physical interaction between players as well. Mm. Uh, you have an interesting story about the first collegiate game. What happened there? Yeah, yeah so it was 1896. So again, very, very early in terms of if the game's invented in 1892, already in 1896, it's on the West Coast. And two teams, University of California and Stanford, and these aren't like, you know, the way we would consider them now, like NCAA regulated, intercollegiate. I mean, there, there was no standard governing body that put on these games, but there two clubs, I guess you would probably call them, developed at each school, and they decided to play against each other. So it becomes the first intercollegiate women's basketball game played at the, the San Francisco Armory in 1896. And there's just the hubbub around it is just kind of cinematic. There, the, <laughs> the two newspapers in San Francisco, I mean, newspapers we would still now know, like the Chronicle, or the examiner, I'm not sure if the examiner is still around, they sent. They only could send women reporters and women illustrators because it was thought to be kind of uncouth to have men watching women play sports. And so what ends up happening is that there's a ton of media coverage, but it's all by women, and also men aren't allowed to watch the game. So you have, you know, the, the place is filled with female spectators from these two respective schools, and men are so curious that they are, like, climbing the scaffolding and the parts of the armory to try to peek inside. So it's actually this, like, very the inverse of what we now think of, of how a lot of men react to women's basketball, which is, you know, I wouldn't touch that, right? I don't want to watch that. But here right. at the outset, people were clamoring to see what it was about, and the game made a lot of money. They charged something like 50 cents for spectators and, that first ever women's college basketball game actually funded the Cal men's track team's upcoming event. So it's oh. kind of got this interesting kind of juxtaposition of now people think of women's sports as being subsidized by men's sports, but at the outset it, it was actually, you know, in this moment in time, the opposite. And also back m many years, I think it was in the 1930s, there was an all-black barnstorming uh, basketball team. Oh, yeah. You know, that's that was one of the things I learned kind of throughout this research process is finding how they were playing at different decades. And, you know, in, in the 1930s, in, specifically in cities like Chicago and Philadelphia, there were so many, bar, like what we would consider barnstorming, very, very similar to the Harlem Globetrotters that we now know today that also, that also got its start in that in in those eras and so in chicago in philadelphia there were these teams that were very much embraced by the, by the city by the by the neighborhoods like within chicago that at the time were kind of all black and there were like all black newspapers like the philadelphia tribune which is still in existence mm -hmm. and they wrote about and supported sometimes sponsored these clubs and they would not just travel within the city and play games that were very well attended and highly publicized, but also would kind of barnstorm around the country. And at that point, it becomes fascinating in how the team itself markets itself. There's that element of, of that Harlem Globetrotters spectacle where, you know, maybe they, they had a player who was probably 6'4", which was so tall for a, a woman then and now. And they were listing, you know, listing her as like the seven foot. You know, there was always <laughs> that kind of spectacular exaggeration. 
but there was also the novelty that the team had that this specific team, like if we're talking about the club store co-eds with this famous team in the thirties, you know, they were also marketing themselves as like an all black team. So there was this spectacle element to it as they, they traveled in often white spaces throughout the country. And so, you know, it's, it, it was kind of one of those histories where as, you know, as a white woman you're writing about and you want to make sure you're both, you're both honoring these women who, who carried forth the game during these decades, but also show the difficulty that, that, you know, transpired in, in, in trying to be some, a black woman who's traveling the country playing a game of basketball. What was the name of the Chicago barnstorming team? Well, there was a number of them throughout the years, right? There was, there was the Romers. There was the, the one you might be talking about, like there was this, you know, store that in black Chicago was very popular called, you know, the club store. And they were, their technical name was the club store co-eds, but their colloquial name, and it's it almost like it's difficult for me to say now, but that was the way it was often branded at the time was the chocolate co-ed. Oh. Um, and, you know, and there was other teams in Philadelphia, like the Philadelphia Tribunes, and there was the Germantown Hornets. But like what came along with so many of these barnstorming teams even on, even like out of Oklahoma, there was a team called the All-American Redheads, and their gimmick was everyone dyed their hair red. And this was like an all, you know, an all-white barnstorming team that had come out of like the Arkansas, Oklahoma area. So they all had their gimmicks and their way of like producing marketing materials. And that club store team used this kind of moniker, the Chocolate Coeds. Huh. Um, that might be what you're referring to. Kate Fagan is author of Hoop Muses, an insider's guide to pop culture and the women's game. If you want to keep interesting people like Kate Fagan on the Internet with uh, fascinating stories from history, the history of basketball and, and everything, well, one way to do that is to help us here at the Historian's Podcast with a little financial support. You can uh, donate to our 2023 fund drive uh, by clicking on the link to go to our GoFundMe page. You find the link on our website, which is bobcudmore.com. You can also uh, give by check. Uh, make a check out to me, Bob Cudmore, and mail it to Bob Cudmore at 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 123. Zero two. Uh, is the game still centered uh, in, in, at the collegiate level, you know, as opposed to the professional level, which also exists? The WNBA, you know, the, the professional outlet here in the state is growing in terms of the, its engagement level and its growth in, in fan base and kind of that, that local allegiance that we see so readily on the men's side. I would say historically the game has been anchored at the NCAA level because mostly because of Title IX when it passed mm-hmm. in 1972 and you know made equal funding both on the academic and the athletic side um, a necessity. Now, even though Title IX says that legally things need to be funded equally, we all know how the the reality of some of those things play out. I mean, women's sports has never been funded equally at the college side for various reasons we could possibly get into. But so that's why historically the women's basketball game has been anchored in the NCAA because there's built in funding. And then there's also, there's also built in allegiances. 
where, Mm -hmm. you know, if you went to, uh, let's say, Notre Dame, and you've got generations of family that went there, you end up, you understand the storyline of rooting for Notre Dame, and it doesn't matter that women's basketball maybe just started in the 70s versus football, which has been going on for generations. You still have that, like, built-in fan base and built-in understanding. And so the women's game has definitely flourished at the college level because it's hard to build that history for the professional side. It takes a lot of time. This may be a very a stupid question. I'm hoping you'll dismiss it early. Uh, it seems to me that men's basketball has a great source of players, if you will, from street basketball. Um, you know, maybe primarily African American young guys uh, playing pickup games of basketball in in neighborhoods and um, in cities and so forth. Is that true of women's basketball as well? I mean, do women play, I guess I'd say, street basketball? Yeah, I, uh, absolutely. I mean, there's there when you look at where people play growing up, you have the same effect that you're talking about, which is basketball happens to be a game where there are hoops up in, in most neighborhoods in the entire country, and all you need is a basketball. So in the same way you have guys coming up and, you know, they've been playing in whatever neighborhoods they grew up in, that is also the case for women. You know, there's one famous women's player named Dawn Staley who who now coaches the best team in women's college basketball who grew up in Philadelphia and specifically on a court at the corner of 25th Street and Diamond in in northern Philadelphia, same court that Hank Gathers played at, right? And so she grew up playing on that core. Like you see that parallel, um, but you also see, you also see there are certain states that would that have defended the the right of women to play at the high school level. Like a state like Iowa has since 1920s, they tried to they tried to ban women's high school basketball tournaments. And say like you know again the whole like unladylike this isn't good for them and there were men at the time who said that was the wrong decision and they started their own organizational committee and this is 1925 and started putting on state tournaments and organizing high school basketball in Iowa and these state tournaments even in the 1930s would have like seven six seven thousand people watching the 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 state tournament in Iowa and so you have a, a state like Iowa where rich of girls playing in Iowa, which leads to, you know, the University of Iowa being one of the iconic programs. Um, so there's a different history on the women's side at various points because of the story, like I just mentioned, in Iowa, but some of the socioeconomic drivers in different communities are the same on the women's side as they are on the men. And what about the world of the fans? I mean, you have been talking about it. You have one uh, concept here, the movies that should have been. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's part of the part of what we wanted to build into the book was not just the history, but also a lot of fun conceits that in their own way go towards showing how popular culture and other media have helped develop men's sports. And some of that comes with a lot of the you know movies going back to, I think it was either the late 80s or early 90s, you have like White Men Can't Jump with Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes all the way through Space Jam 
so part of in the book we had an artist reimagine those movies as if throughout history they were made to celebrate and tell the stories of the women who played the game um because you know there there are so many stories that have that same hollywood arc on the women's side as on the men's side we just don't we don't you know we don't honor it or put it forth in in culture for many 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 reasons which we could get into okay well let me uh, ask you about a few um historical uh figures who was pat summit and the early years of the lady vols pat summit pat summit is one of probably the most iconic coach in the history of the women's game she um she passed away at a young age, young, young, younger age from early onset Alzheimer's. The, the name that comes through to me, uh, both, both I know some fans of it, and it's pretty, it's really big on TV. Is anytime UConn plays, and one of their rivals is Tennessee, and something called the sliding doors moment that sparked their rivalry. Tennessee and UConn are. Probably still, people would say it's iconic in women's basketball. Although UConn still has the same coach it has had, Gino Ariema, and Tennessee has lost Pat Summit. So that program is, you know, still trying to understand what its identity will be. Kate Fagan is author of Hoop Muses and Insider's Guide to Pop Culture and the Women's Game. I did uh, save uh, maybe a little time. I just wanted to ask you about the a book that's nothing to do with basketball that you wrote about Madison Halloran, What Made Maddie Run. I believe that became a number one New York Times bestseller. What what a story, and it does kind of resonate with young people today, even younger than you, a teen track star who took her own life at age 19. Yep. Yeah, um, that was a book I wrote. Madison um, took her own life in... 2015 now, um, it, during her freshman year at the University of Pennsylvania, where she was playing cross country and track and field, and, and she was from a, a town in Jersey, a suburb of, of New York City, and kind of, in all the ways we think of it in this culture, sort of like the classic, quote-unquote, all-American girl, you know, traditionally beautiful, comes from, you know, a, a big family where all the siblings love each other and all of that stuff, and... She, um, you know, despite all of those outside appearances that seemed like she had everything, she was really struggling in many ways um, with factors both external and internal. You know, by that I mean external being like the achievement pressure to continue excelling at a sport as she's changing who she is and getting into college and, and, you know, redefining yourself as kids tend to do during that time period. And then internal as well. You know, having depression, what her parents would say was clinical depression and, and coming from a family that had that issue genetically. So there was like all these factors. And, and the book, What Made Maddie Run, tells her story, but also it tells a larger story of how and why rates of anxiety and depression and suicide, thought and suicide are, have been at rising among young people and specifically young girls. And so her for a lot of young people, it connected with them, right? They, they might not have seen themselves in everything that happened with Maddie, but 
often they could feel like they were seen and, and understood through the telling of her story. Kate Fagan has uh, joined us, a native of uh, Niskayuna, Niskayuna High School graduate. Her latest book is Hoop Muses, an Insider's Guide to Pop Culture and the Women's Game, an Adventure Through Basketball History. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. I hope you can give to our Historian's Podcast Fund Drive. Uh, You can go to our website and link to GoFundMe. You can also send a check made out to me, Bob Cudmore, to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, 12302. Thank you.